Let me start us out with a word of prayer, please. Father, we just come before you, Lord. We acknowledge that you are Lord, and this world is yours. We acknowledge that we are merely sinners saved by your grace. Father, as we look at a text which is um, has some different interpretations depending on different groups and people, but Lord, help us to understand that it is your word and that we do need to, to see it clearly and see it correctly. Um, if for no other reason, then it's your word. Father, we think about those missing from this body this morning, especially those over at uh, Pickwick, the youth, and all those gracious adults who are serving our children and sharing the gospel with our children. Lord, we thank you for all of them, and we just pray your blessings on them. Lord, as we look at your word, help me to be clear, help me to be accurate, and may your word bear fruit in all of our lives. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we had a dog one time that uh, had an issue with her skin. And we took her to the vet. And the vet said, well, these are nothing. These are just basically little pimples. And he starts messing with these things. And I'm basically going, oh, that's awful. I can't watch that. Well, he said, oh, this is, I live for this kind of thing. And I thought, what kind of person lives to pop pimples? And, you know, what kind of person does that? So... Anyway, let me tell you what I live for. When there's a text of Scripture that's difficult or it's disputed, it's one of those things that I love to dive into. That's just kind of who I am, kind of how I'm wired. So I love to look at a text that's that's has some difficulty to it. Now, I don't know what that sheet says, if it says anything about what I'm preaching on, but I told Tyler that I was preaching today on the parables. And I did put in there... In parentheses, subject to change. So it did change. So today I'm actually preaching on the real meaning of Romans chapter 7. And because I couldn't really come up with, or or I liked both the titles that I had, I just put them both on my paper here. So the other title is New Covenant Victory. We're talking about victory over sin. So I'll just tell you, before we get to the text, Romans chapter 7 is typically taught, is frequently taught, that this is about the Apostle Paul's struggle with sin. Basically, the part that we're going to get to uh, that I'm talking about is around verses 19 or so. And he says, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. And then in 24, he says, Who's going to serve, who will save me from this body of death? Typically, that's taught as Paul's struggle with sin. And by association, he's a believer and we're a believer. Our, associate, our struggle with sin. But I don't think that's what that text is talking about. I actually, on Tuesday, watched a short video and... It changed my mind. If I had preached this sermon before that uh, video done by someone at the Master's Seminary, I probably would have said the same thing. But it's really not. Paul, in that text, and I'm, I'm taking you to the end. 
okay, I'm taking you to the destination of this sermon already. And that is, Paul is talking about victory over sin in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and in the New Covenant. Which, which is going to help us have victory over sin? Really, the only point, there's only one point of this sermon, and it's this. The text in Romans 7 is sometimes misunderstood. It's not about Paul's struggle with sin, or even our struggle with sin, unless we're trying to earn favor with God. If we're trying to earn our righteousness through law, then it's about us, okay? So it's not about, is this a Christian struggle with sin? It's about the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, I guess it was yesterday that Julie actually asked me a question. And at first, I didn't, it, it didn't really hit me the importance of this question. But the more I thought about it yesterday, it, it, it's, I thought about it more. I thought, that's a really important question. So I want to answer that. And she said, why does it matter if the struggle with sin is taught elsewhere in the Bible, then why does it matter if people say that's what's taught in Romans chapter 7? If it's not leading us astray to think that it's about the struggle with sin, then why, who cares? Because it, the Bible clearly teaches we struggle with sin. And Paul, being a man, struggled with sin as well. And here's the thing. You know, we kind of want it to be about the struggle with sin because, right, we all struggle with sin. We want it to be because it seems so relatable to us. You hear Paul say, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. Who's going to save me from this? Right? It seems so relatable to us. So that's kind of what we want it to be about. But it's just not. It's about trying to please God, trying to be righteous the old way through law, or the new way through the grace of Christ. So her question was, why does it matter if the Bible teaches that we struggle with sin elsewhere? Why can't it just say that here in Romans chapter 7? So let me give you some answers. I'm going to give you the theological answers first. We are told, actually in the law, but it's part of the law of God. You understand the law of God is bigger than just the Mosaic law given to Moses, right? God destroyed the world, all but eight people. There was no Mosaic law then. So what law was it that they violated? They violated the law of God, this overarching law that's always there. God is who he is. Righteousness is what it is. So the first reason that we want to get this text right is because if we don't, we're bearing false witness against this particular text. We want to get God's word right. Second reason. Actually, let me give you a quote from John MacArthur on this. About get, this is about getting the Bible correct. You have no right to put words into God's mouth and say he said what he did not say, nor to take words out of his mouth and say what he said. You get that? So we don't have right to, to violate the ninth commandment and bear false witness about what God said. It's just as simple as that. We have to get his words correct. Then there's 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul's words to Timothy, right? What are we supposed to be when we handle God's word? We're supposed to be workmen who are not ashamed, handling accurately the word of God. So we're told in the New Testament, get the word of God correct. And if we're told to get the word of God, God correct, that assumes that it's 
getting correctable, right? It's, it is correct. You can get it correct. You can do that. So, having said that, that's the reasoning why I wanted to just make a point that Romans chapter 7 is really not about the struggle with sin. Does the Bible teach that we struggle with sin? Absolutely. Does it teach it here? I don't think so. It's te- Paul's saying, how are you going to struggle with sin? Are you going to try to live a righteous life on your own, or are you going to rest in Christ? Which way are you going to do it? So, because uh, this is a book to the Romans, the Roman church started out being very Jewish, and then it became more Gentile because the Jews were expelled from Rome. And then the Jews started coming back into Rome. So when Paul writes this, Jews are returning to Rome. So they've probably been back in Israel. And they've been exposed again to the, the, the Judaism, the, the rituals of the Mosaic Law. And they're coming back into a Christian environment in the church there. Or they were probably in a Christian environment in, in Israel as well. But now they're back in a Gentile environment, Gentile Christians. So that's the sort of the background that's going on here. So I thought it'd be a good idea because David talked about the covenants a couple of weeks ago. He talked about the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant specifically. So I thought it would be good since our text that we're getting to is about the old covenant and the new covenant. Why don't we just rehearse a little bit the covenants? It's never a bad idea because the covenants in the Bible are a skeleton upon which the rest of the Bible is built. All the meat of the Bible, all this narrative stuff that we read in the Old Testament, the narrative, and then in the New Testament, all of that is built on the covenants of the Bible. That's why the Bible is a unified whole. It's starting somewhere and it's going somewhere. So what are the covenants? Walter Kaiser said every student of the Bible must realize that the various biblical covenants revealed in the Old Testament are interconnected. Throughout the Old Testament, God is weaving a beautiful covenant tapestry, weaving each new covenant into the fabric of the former covenants. So what covenants are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the biblical covenants, the covenants that we actually read in black ink in the Bible. What are they? Well, as David said, the Abrahamic covenant. When did that come about? Well, it came about after the flood and after the Tower of Babel. The human race had failed. The human race has failed twice at this point, miserably. So God calls a man named Abe and gives him a new name, Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham, and and this is a promised covenant, meaning, as David explained, it means God just made a promise to Abraham. It, it, It consists of several different things, but it is a promise that he made to Abraham. Abraham didn't have to do anything. Abraham was asleep when this covenant was made. So it's just a one-party thing. God makes a promise. God's going to keep that promise. So what was in that covenant? This is You can find this in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 13, Genesis 17. God told Abraham that he would be blessed and be a blessing to the world. That's in chapter, verse 2. He told Abraham, I'll make you a great name. You'll be known in the whole world. You'll have many physical descendants. You'll be the father of many nations. And Canaan, the land, will be yours forever and your descendants forever. So it was a promise covenant. God made a promise. It's going to happen at some point through the fulfillment of time, right? 
It'll happen out there. The covenant was irrevocable. It cannot be changed. In chapter 17 of Genesis, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God makes this promise to Abraham. This is what's going to happen. But God is righteous. God's not going to bless sinful people, right? So God calls Moses. and calls the people out of Egypt. And he says to them, you can be a righteous people. And the promises that I made to your father, you can start enjoying the blessings of that promise now. You can enjoy some of that already. You just have to be a righteous people. So we have Moses, God giving to Moses this new covenant, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. What is that? Is that a promise? No, it's not really a promise. It's what's called an administrative covenant. I like the term practical because I like the two Ps. You've got a promise covenant and you've got a practical covenant. The promise covenant is what God's going to do. The practical covenant is supposed to guide you there to guide you to that place where those promises can be fulfilled. Okay, it's, a, it's an administration of those promises that God made. You'll find in uh, Exodus 24, verses 6 to 8, you'll find that this covenant with Moses was ratified with blood. So hyssop was dipped in blood and the blood sprinkled on the people. And you know at the crucifixion we have some similar imagery. We have the blood of Christ dripping down. And all those in Christ, their forgiveness, they're part of the new covenant, right? So with this Mosaic covenant, it was possible to be an Israelite and have access to the covenant, but to not really be a believer. It was possible to not be a believer. We'll see in the new covenant, it's not possible to not be a believer. Anyone in the new covenant is going to be a believer. So, and I think David pointed this out too when he, when he talked about this. It's a suzerain vassal kind of thing. The Mosaic law, that law that was given to Moses, those Ten Commandments on the tablets were part of that. It's what's called suzerain vassal treaty. So it's like a, a bigger king, powerful king, and a lesser king make an agreement. The big king says, hey, I'll take care of you. I'll watch out for you. I'll make provision for you. But these are the things that you do for me. That's what the Mosaic law is. It's an agreement between two parties, not just one. God made promises to Abraham. That was just God talking, just God making promises. In the Mosaic law, it's both sides. Both sides have obligations. So God's asking the people of Israel, do you want to be righteous or not righteous? Are you righteous or unrighteous? This is how you do it. Here's the law that you keep. Well, we know the story, right? The story of Israel was repeated failure. Repeated failure. In Hosea, which our pastor has preached through this text, it says, And the Lord said, to, this is to Israel, Name him Lo-Ami, that's Hosea's son, who, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, and in place where it, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Hosea is a book about the failure of Israel to, to keep the law. That's what it's about. Israel, in the Old Testament, is repeated failure, right? It's repeated failure. It's the failure, first, of mankind altogether. Then you have Abraham and his descendants. You have Moses with a covenant to help them live righteously. And then you have Israel not living righteously. Even the kings that were supposed to be themselves little sons of God led Israel astray instead, right? So that's the problem. But later prophets start speaking about a new covenant, a new covenant to replace the Mosaic covenant. That's seen mainly in Jeremiah 31, 31. That's where you start to see that. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's keep going with the covenants. We got the Abrahamic covenant. We got the Davidic covenant. Uh, I'm sorry, the Abraham covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now this is the Davidic covenant, right? God made a covenant with David. Uh, that was the other one, actually, that David uh, spoke on a few weeks ago. So it's another promise. Here's David. I'm going to make you a dynasty. I'm going to give you a lineage of people, and they're going to be on the throne forever. So David's going to have a son on the throne forever. And we know that son is the Messiah. He is going to be called the Son of God. Uh, jot down Isaiah 11.1 1, and Jeremiah 23.5. That covenant with David, also everlasting, there will always be a king on Israel's throne, a son of David. That's the promise that's made. But... If you know the history of Israel, there were problems, right? These promises are made to Abraham, and this promise is made to David. But what's the problem? The problem is people keep sinning. Even the kings keep sinning and leading the country astray, right? So what are we going to do? How, what's the solution to this? Well, these prophets of Israel start saying, hey, there's going to be another covenant. There's going to be a way to live in a righteous way that God wants that's going to be coming in the future. And so God, these, these uh, prophets start telling us about the new covenant. So what is the new covenant? The new covenant is an administrative covenant, right? So you had Abraham, promised Abraham. You had the Mosaic covenant, which helped bring about these promises to Abraham. It gave them an opportunity to enjoy the promises, right? But they failed. They failed. They failed to live righteously as God gave, told them through the Mosaic law. So these prophets, they're telling, hey, there's going to be a new covenant. That new covenant is a new administrative covenant. It's a new way for people, especially the Jewish people, and out to Gentiles for us to live righteously. That's the promise that's made. You know, this promise that Jeremiah puts down here in Jeremiah 31, that's about 600 B.C. It's about 600 years before Christ. An interesting thing here is that this new covenant is made with Israel and Judah, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But wait, there was no Israel. Israel got carried away by Assyria in 722. So this promise is made to a nation that doesn't even exist anymore. Only the southern kingdom exists, but God makes this promise to all of Israel, both the northern and the southern tribes. 
But you know what? The new covenant, it says that Gentiles will have the overflow benefits. That covenant is made with Israel and Judah. And I say this because it's important. I've heard people say or allude to the new covenant being made with the church, that the new church, that the new covenant is for the church. That is not what Jeremiah says. Let me read that to you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember, there's no Israel when he says this. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Right? So I gave you a covenant back then, but what did you do? You broke it. I'm going to give you a new covenant. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, right? That kind of is that familial thing like Hosea, right? We, we were family and you violated uh, the trust. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of these to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So here we have, at the end of the Old Testament, we have a promise of a new covenant that's going to help Israel and Judah live righteously because the old covenant failed. Because it didn't fail, the people failed. Right, It brought the sin out of them rather than giving a means of salvation. So this new covenant, it goes by different names. Uh, everlasting covenant, we see that in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. It's also called the covenant of peace in Ezekiel. It's called a new heart and a new spirit. And then in Hebrews 8, 6, it's called a better covenant. It's a better covenant than the old covenant. Well, when? When is this covenant going to happen? Well, in the Testament, Hosea 3 says it's in the future. And it's at the time of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, there will be this new covenant, and these promises will be a part of their life. So what about Israel? Well, Israel will be alive. It will be a time of life for Israel. That's Ezekiel 37, those bones coming back together and then coming to life. So has that happened? Well, I think the beginning of it happened when, when Israel became a nation in 48. That's the very first movement of Israel coming back to life. Are they spiritually alive? I don't think so yet. I don't see any repentance on the nation of Israel for crucifying the Messiah. So, no, there's not spiritual life there, but there is physical life coming as a nation coming back together. And... That new covenant is going to be a part of the messianic kingdom in the future. Isaiah, Jeremiah, both talk about that. So what's the result of this new covenant? Well, the new covenant is that relationship. You heard that in that text. When I read that in Jeremiah, I will be their God, right? You shall be my people. That's what God wants is that relationship. It's a, it's a relationship of love is what it is. God is a person, and he wants, like all the rest of us, a relationship of love, a relationship of want to. I want to do this. So this new covenant, it's an administrative covenant. It's got a little, a little promise to it as well. 
So what does it promise? It promises a new heart. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11, and Ezekiel 36. There won't be any unbelievers in the new covenant. It offers permanent forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 50, Ezekiel 36, and Matthew 26, 28. Permanent forgiveness under the new covenant. It offers the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's Ezekiel 36, 27. The law of the Lord will be written on the heart. And so here's the thing. Here's really the, the issue that matters. Obedience becomes something that we want to do. That's the difference between the Mosaic Law and where we are, where we stand as Christians. The difference is we do, we live a righteous life. We try because we want to, not because we have to. That is the distinction right there. Somebody said, uh, actually I wrote his name here, good. Carl Hawk said this. He said, the new covenant comes with batteries included. That's the Holy Spirit. It's a covenant of spirit, not a covenant of flesh trying to work your, out your own righteousness in your flesh. Right? It comes with batteries included. So I want to show a video right now. I'll give them just a second. Uh, let me set this up. Uh, I just happened to see this. I think it was yesterday. Now, I have a farm down in Mississippi. And I have those, these double gates that I have to go through to get into the in, interior part of the farm. And so I can kind of appreciate this. So I laughed out loud at this video. It's only about 15-second long video. But a friend of mine said, you know what? That makes a pretty good example of what it's like to try to live a righteous life under the law. And I thought, yeah, it really does. And so... You know, there's a Mosaic law for Jewish people, but, you know, we're Gentiles, most of us, right? You know, we do our own law. You ever notice that? We write our own law. I was thinking about Kim. I was thinking about even atheists that don't, as she was formerly, that don't have a belief in God. They still have this law. And most people aren't atheists. Most people say there is a God, and that God is going to accept me. Why? Because... You know, I've judged myself according to my own law, and I'm worthy to go to heaven, right? That's what most people think. And I would say even, even atheists, they would have some sort of law. I'm a good person. You know, by whatever their standard of good is in their mind. They have got a law in their head. But anyway, so we start the, commer the, the commercial, the uh, video. Just think about struggle with sin. And this is kind of under the law. Have you got that?
I've had that experience. So, you know, that's, that's the battle with sin, right? That's the battle with sin under the law, trying to keep, trying to keep the appearance at least of righteousness, right, Un- under the law. I've got to do it because I've got to do it, not because I want to do it. There's nothing under the law, there's nothing inside of me driving that righteousness out in, in the way that we act, right? So what is the book of Romans about? That's where we're heading, Romans chapter 7. Romans is about the gospel, and it's about the power of the gospel. It's about how to be righteous under the new covenant, how the new covenant helps us to be righteous, where the old covenant, even if we're not Jewish, we still have our own law, right? We have some law in our head that we think makes us righteous, but of course we're not the judge. We're not going to stand before ourselves one day and be judged. We'll stand before God. We need to know what his standard is. So what we found out from David is that the standard, these fulfillments of these covenants are found in Christ. That's what the new covenant tells us. Christ is the fulfillment of this. So by being in Christ, we have a means of righteousness. So as we approach our text, one of my seminary professors wrote this. Romans 7, of course, is right in the middle of Romans 6, 7, and 8. So he's talking about that, those three chapters, and he says this. Romans 6, 7, and 8 has to be understood covenantally in relation to the Old and New Covenants. Romans 7 describes what we just saw in that video. It describes the frustration of trying to obey God under the Mosaic Law since the good and holy law reveals sin, but it does not enable one to please God. The Mosaic law did not come with batteries. The new covenant comes with batteries. That's another way of saying the Holy Spirit within us, who empowers our life, right? It is the new covenant of Romans 8 that brings victory and freedom over sin. Romans 6, the chapter before our text, also ties union with Christ as the key to victory over sin. Thus, Romans 7 is the problem. So Romans 7, our chapter, is telling us about the problem of trying to obey God through some legalistic methodology. While Romans 6 and 8 portray the solutions, the new covenant and its union with Christ, that's the solution to the problem of struggling with sin. The key is verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is the problem, and verse 6 is the solution. That's where we'll start, by the way. Verse 5 is explained in verses 14 to 25, and chapter 7, verse 6, is explained in Romans 8, 1 through 4. So those are, that's the text we're going to read right now. So Romans is not about it's hard to be a Christian. That's typically that's a common sermon that we get from this text. It's hard to be a Christian. It's not exactly it. It's about what is the correct understanding of who you are in order to struggle with sin. It's not about the struggle itself. It's about who are you in Christ. It's about, chapter 7, is about frustration under the Mosaic Law with the answer being found in the New Covenant of Romans 8. If you put yourself under the Mosaic Law... And again, in our evangelism, 
It doesn't have to be specifically the Mosaic law. Like I said, people make their own laws and judge themselves, right? So you could address that that way. How do you know you're righteous? Well, I mean, is that God's standard? Is that your standard, right? So if you are in union with Christ, you can experience the new covenant. You can have the experience of Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4, okay? So let's look at Romans 7. And actually, I'm going to start at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Right. He's just talked about if a spouse dies, then that other spouse is free to remarry, right? And he's saying you have died to the law. And remember, this is written to the Romans. This is the Roman church, which is now becoming more Jewish again, right? But what happened is the emperor expelled the Jews from Rome in 49. In 54, a new Caesar is on the throne. And so the Jews started coming back into Rome, into the Roman church again. So a church which was Jewish went pretty much completely Gentile, and now it's back to being a mixture of Jewish and and Gentile believers. So you have been made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, here's verse 5. Verse 5 is going to tell us what the problem is with the Mosaic Law. For while we were in the flesh, that means before we, before we had the Holy Spirit, when it was just us in our sinful flesh, we weren't redeemed. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. There's the problem. Okay, go to verse 14. Now, as I was, I don't have it here in this Bible, which is New American Standard, but the New American Standard I have in my phone actually gives a paragraph title right here that says uh, the conflict of two natures, which is what I'm telling you that I don't think that is the correct interpretation. I don't think this is about the conflict of our two natures. It's the conflict of two covenants. It's the conflict of pleasing God through the law or pleasing God in Christ, through Christ. So verse 14 says, and this gets a little wordy. All of, I'm skipping some here because this is all very technical, theological. It's very wordy. It's hard to listen to. So I'm just going to 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Right? That's not Paul. That's not Paul. Paul is not sold into bondage to sin. He's a believer. He is free from the bondage of sin. So why is he saying I, through this whole paragraph, I, me, why is he doing that? It is a technical device. He is putting himself in the place of primarily the Jewish believers in Rome who may be tempted to try to live righteously by the Mosaic law. That's what he's doing. He's projecting himself into their place. Are you going to please God by continuing to fail with the Mosaic law, like all that failure that you know about in the Old Testament? Is that what you're going to cling to, or are you going to cling to Christ to please God? So let me continue on. 
verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. At least the law is telling me what's not good. At least I know that from it. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. He's talking about your flesh. Your flesh is the one that sins. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want to do. So here's the text, right? This is the issue. Is this Paul really talking about himself? And I'm saying no. Paul is saying this is the struggle, especially for Jewish believers here in Rome. How do I live a righteous life? Do I live by clinging to the law or do I live it by clinging to Christ? Verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law in my mind. So he's saying these, these Jewish people, they're, they're good. At least they understand the, the law. They want to do the right thing, but they can't. Your body fights against what you know is right. And it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he exalts the new covenant through Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I find myself, I find with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So this is the problem. Again, this sermon really only has one point, and it is let's get this text accurate. It's really not about Paul's struggle with sin. Let me ask you, let me, let me point out again the question that I was asked by Julie. What difference does it make? And I gave you two reasons, right? I gave you the reason we don't want to get God's word wrong, right? We want to get it right. We're told to do that, and we're told that's actually a requirement for teaching. Get it right. Rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God has got to be gotten right. So there's those two reasons straight from Scripture. But here's the other concern. Here's a more practical concern that I have with this text being, being misunderstood. And the idea being put out there that, that this is about Paul's struggle with sin and therefore our struggle with sin. And it's this. If Paul struggled with sin like this text talks about, am I okay to struggle with sin like this text talks about, if Paul did? You see, it opens a door to what in theology, the theology world is called antinomianism, lawlessness. It's okay. We all struggle with sin, and we start downplaying it. So that's the problem. That's the practical problem of misunderstanding this text. Do we struggle with sin? Sure. Do we all know that we all struggle with sin? Sure, we do. Of course we do. But we don't want to open a door to saying that that's okay, that we struggle with sin. It's not, sin is not okay. 
sin nailed Jesus to a cross. That's how un-okay it is. How not okay it is. So, and we were raised what? We were raised in Christ to do what? We read it a minute ago. To bear fruit, right? To bear righteous fruit. That's why we were saved. So we don't want to just go on sinning so that grace can abound, as Paul says. May it never be that that be the case. That we would go on sinning. So that's the practical reason why this is important. So, let's go back. We read verses 4 and 5, and verse 5 was our problem, right? Now let's read the solution. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So the Holy Spirit gives us the power to live a godly life that the law, the Mosaic law, did not. And you know what? When we talk to people out in the world, like I said, they have their own law that they've got in their head. Um, I'm having trouble thinking of his name. I wasn't going to say this. Ray uh, Comfort. Ray Comfort. If you've watched any of the videos of Ray Comfort evangelizing, he does this absolutely masterfully with people. He will take the law and he will say, this is God's standard. This is God's standard. This is God's standard. Are you meeting that standard? And he leads that person into, the, into a place where they have to admit that they're not meeting God's standard. So he gets them away from their own law in their head and gets them to God's law and shows that they need a Savior. Well, if you're not meeting this standard and this is the standard that has to be met, you better find that standard somewhere else. And that standard is met in Christ. So you need to be in Christ. Right. That's that's what Ray Comfort does if you see those videos. So let's go back. Let's look at verse six of chapter seven. Oh, we just read that, didn't I? But now we have been I'll read it again. Never hurts. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, remember chapter six and chapter eight are the good part. Chapter 7, the bad part's in the middle. So go over to chapter 8, and let's look at those first four verses. Therefore, and this is a very well-known verse, okay? And this is one that we need to keep reminding ourselves of in this day and age. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? He He took the wrath of God. If you've heard the propitiation of God... He took the wrath of God in our place. That's why there's no condemnation. He took it on the cross, which, of course, is activated by faith in him, right? So verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Let me read that again. For the law, we're still talking law, of the spirit of the life in Christ. So now there's a new law. It's the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So the law of Christ releases us from the condemnation of God's standard because Christ met that standard. That is what Paul is saying. Are you going to be righteous by continuing to fail under a set of rules and regulations or are you going to be righteous because the spirit of life from Christ is inside of you and working its way out of you so that you live in a righteous way and a continuing a growing into the likeness of Christ that's his point and so that's my only point in this sermon that that is 
the true intent of Paul's meaning in this text. The intent of Paul was not to say, you know, guys, I really struggle with sin. And so I guess it's okay that we all really struggle with sin. We want to be careful we don't misunderstand God's word because we don't want to misrepresent it. We're told not to, not to misrepresent it in 2 Timothy 2.15. And it has bad implications sometimes when we do misrepresent it. Let me go on and read a little bit more of chapter 8. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is still the solution, right? Chapter 8 is the solution. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, the flesh is associated with the old covenant, right? Because all it did was point out the sin of our flesh. You must die. But if the Spirit, but if by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. Life is in the life of Christ. Life is in the obedience of Christ. It's not in a bunch of do's and don'ts that we have to, that we have to meet because that's what the whole Old Testament shows us. We can't do that. There has to be life given to us through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, empowering us to do what we need to do. Uh, guys, y'all can, can come on up. I know that Romans is a very theological, theologically technical kind of book. Um, I know addressing an issue like this may seem—I I don't know what it seems like. You know, I know it seems more technical than a lot of things. But if nothing else, the importance of getting God's word right is what I hope to get across to you, and that. You know, sometimes that's difficult, but it's possible. And, you know, God's word is life to us. You know, if you're not, if you're not spending a lot of time, or at least some time, in God's word, do it because it's life. It's hard to go through this world and see. There's a quote, I can't, can't think of it right now. I want to say it was Corey Ten Boom that said it. But if, you, if your eyes are on the world, you'll be uh, depressed. But if your eyes are on Christ and what he did and what he's accomplishing in this world and bringing us along and blessing us through it all, and that it's all connected through the whole course of human history and it's all going somewhere and it's going somewhere wonderful, if our eyes are on that, it'll get us through a lot of things.